This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Welcome to The Times. To find out more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Welcome to the latest edition of the Times Opinion Podcast. My name is Tim Montgomery, and this week I'm joined by three stellar Times columnists, Jenny Russell, Matthew Paris, and Hugo Rifkind. Is the ice cap finally starting to break? For months the polls have been locked with Labour and the Tories stuck on a third of the vote, and Labour just slightly ahead. Labour's been hoping that the electorate will reject austerity, and the Tories have been anxiously awaiting a reward for seeing the economy turning at last. But are we seeing a thaw? The Tories have led more of the last 20 polls than Labour have. Can Labour pull back, or is this the start of an election-losing slide? OK, I'll say it. I think there's a chance the Tories are just going to win outright. We in the media have a habit of fighting the last battle, and because the last election led to a coalition, this is conditioned thinking about the next one, but Labour support may just begin to ebb away, not least because the party has no stomach for this fight, and people know it. Parts of England are developing a profound jockophobia, which threatens the Union at least as much as any Scottish nationalism. The SNP having a rolling government is not a risk to Britain. What is a risk to Britain is people saying that the SNP having a rolling government is a risk to Britain. (laughs) If unionism means a Conservative Prime Minister with one Scottish Tory MP, then it also means Scotland's dominant political party being a legitimate coalition party. Suddenly, it seems that lots of people who have spent the last two years pretending to be unionists are showing their true colours. Okay, well, before we go to Scotland, let's start with where Jenny and Matthew have both pointing us towards, which is something, it seems, of a Conservative recovery or improvement in the opinion polls. Now, I should say we're recording this on Tuesday and we are meeting after two opinion polls have given the Conservatives a 4% lead. People listening to us might have more information that will contradict or confirm what we're discussing. But Jenny, um, you think something might be beginning to edge the Tories' way? Well, we know that all of electoral history tells us that the ruling party starts to increase its vote just before polling day. That's People turn around and they think... Um, do I like what this party have done? Do I do I trust the people who have been in charge to carry on being running the country? And so the tendency for the polls is is to go up slightly, which is what Labour has always been scared of. Now, as far as the Tories are concerned, they're expecting this tide to start moving in their favour at about Christmas, and it simply hasn't. And a lot of them are getting extremely nervous. And Linton Crosby, the Tory strategist, has been telling his MPs that they needn't be scared. 
that it's only in the last 10 days that the vote is going to turn decisively in their favour. But as one Tory MP who's not quite sure about the strategy said to me the other day, the great thing about Linton's call is that, of course, we won't know whether he's wrong until it's too late to do anything about it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, the, so it's not that the Tories have begun to recover yet. On the rolling poll average over the past fortnight, they're only 0.1% ahead. But there is finally a bit of movement. Now, the question is whether this is just a blip and whether Labour can reverse it or whether they are now on this slide into which, in the end, the Tories may get more of the vote, even if not more of the seats. It may be lazy to disregard the science and talk about what we feel, but I just don't believe all these polls. It's not that the pollsters (laughs) are lying. I just think that people at the moment don't really know what they're going to do or what they're going to think or how they're going to vote. They haven't made up their own minds, so how can they tell pollsters? So I go instead on the feeling that I get in the street, the feeling that, that I get door-knocking, the feeling that I which, get which overhearing people on the bus. Well, North East Derbyshire, I do mm-hmm. a, a, a bit of campaigning there. For we got a good candidate in North East Derbyshire. And there is just absolutely no zero zilch interest in the Labour Party or enthusiasm for the Labour Party. No positive sense at all, even amongst people who say they're going to vote Labour. Uh, the, the Tories aren't. Is there enthusiasm for the Conservatives? No, the Tories are not exciting that much enthusiasm. But there's much more solidity, mm-hmm. I think, about Tory support. I've, I feel no solidity about Labour support. So I'm just not going to read the polls. I'm just going to believe <laughs> that in the end, more people are going to vote Conservative than bother to vote Labour. I should say at this point that the Times publishes YouGov opinion polls, and they're very interesting to most <laughs> of us. <laughs> um, Jenny, there is something I call the Jenny Russell rule, and it came out of one of your columns Marvelous. after the um, party conference season. and do you, do you remember after the party conference season, I hope you remember, um, the opinion polls drifted a little bit towards the Conservatives and I think you said a few voters paid a little bit of interest and that was good for the Conservatives and I think you then went on to say come the general election a lot of people will pay a lot of interest and we will see the same shift replicated that we saw after the party conference season but on a on a bigger scale and if you're right if Linton Crosby is right and if Matthew is right that voters haven't started paying attention but they will do soon do Labour have anything in their locker Uh, do they have anything left to try and turn this around I think they've got the same appeal that we know that they're making to the nation at the moment, which is that austerity is unnecessary, that the country, further austerity is unnecessary, that the country doesn't need to be cut savagely in the way that the Tories plan, that we are now at the beginning of a recovery and that Labour will oversee spending plans that mean that um, although they'll cut somewhat, they won't cut savagely as the Tories will. So the economy will grow, more people will have jobs, it'll be a fairer society. Whether that's enough to overcome their fundamental disadvantage, which, as we know, is that people don't really have faith in Ed Miliband as a leader, I think is the big unknown question. And I'm sorry to say, I, I doubt it. I mean, I am instinctively, as you know, a Labour supporter, and I would rather have a Keynesian approach to the economy, and I'd like more care for the weakest noticed, at the but bottom. But we have a Keynesian approach to the economy. We're <laughs> borrowing £100 billion a year and have been for five years. If that's not Keynesianism, I don't know what it well, is. Well, I was very relieved when, when, when George Osborne pulled back from the savagery of the cuts that he intended to implement for that reason. But it is undoubtedly true that people aren't fans of Ed Miliband. And within the Labour Party, I heard the other day that in the daily election discussion that Douglas Alexander has with the people on the ground, he normally used to start off by asking them what's the feedback from the doorsteps. 
every single day he was hearing people are very negative about Ed. So he now says, well, we, we're not discussing that. We move on. <laughs> because you're, they can't do anything about this fundamental issue. And it, it isn't the fundamental issue. You're getting a lot of this now amongst Labour supporters. So it's all Ed Miliband's fault. If it wasn't, we didn't have Ed Miliband as our leader, we'd be soaring, cruising, we'd be fantastic. It's, Ooh, he, he's he's the problem. Ed Miliband is a symptom of the Labour Party's problem. He's not the cause of the Labour Party's problem. The problem is, what does a, a high-spending Social Democrat Party well, say at a time of austerity? And, and nobody in the Labour Party that I know has the least idea. Hugo well, Rifkin is about to answer that question yes, for us. Yes, well, <laughs> I mean, I think it's... it's as you say, it's it's bigger than Ed Miliband. I think it's it's actually even bigger than Labour. I think this. I th- I think you're right. I think the Tories will do well in the in the election. I think it's sort of particularly sort of almost amusing that we're about to have this incredibly uncertain election, which I reckon is going to end up end up with us having a government almost identical to the one we have at the moment. What this what this all points towards is this sort of great hypocrisy we have in public language in Britain, in public debate in Britain. We spend so much time, and everyone spends so much time beating beating everybody up about austerity and about food banks and about you know welfare cuts and. and and, and, and columnists pretend and voters pretend they care about this. And then I, I genuinely believe we'll come to an election and a large proportion of voters will actually, no, we don't care about this. We want our economy on a sound footing. And if that means some people suffer, they can be damned, I think. And I think that I think that there's this sort of there's a great gulf between sort of public language, public confession, mm. which even comes out in, in, in opinion polls, and, and private thoughts, which I think in Britain are becoming much more right-wing and much more kind of anti-welfare, uh, you know, pro-self. I think the Tories are perfectly well aware of that, though I was talking to a senior Tory figure a little while ago, so the interesting thing is that if you look at what actually happened to the country under Margaret Thatcher, 10% say of people at the bottom did really badly and they fell behind. Everybody else prospered. So the Tories did very well in the polls. The problem for us is that we have shared the pain much more equally, which means that a lot of people are rather fed up with us. But if people begin to feel, as, as you think they will do, the future looks better for us under the Tories... I think that they will vote selfishly in their interests in that way. I guess the big question is whether we whether we've shared the pain equally enough. Mm. I mean, if you have if you have thirty percent of people, thirty five percent of people in, in in extreme pain because of everything that's happened in the last five years, still doesn't mean you can't win an election by ignoring them. You know, and I and I sure. I have the, a sort I of the sort right. of upsetting feeling that that's pretty much where we are. Because you wrote a column, which um, I should say to all Times subscribers who are listening, if you go to thetimes.co.uk slash comment central, put some background links to some of the things that we've been discussing, including the article which states Jenny Russell's rule. But you wrote a piece in The Spectator, um, Hugo, when you were very critical of David Cameron and the Conservatives, and you feel that he has abandoned, really, all of his modernising early impulses it might not do him any harm at the polls. Yes, I think it's almost worse than that. I think he's he's abandoned one nation. He's handed that over, you know, to to, to, Ed, to Ed Miliband. And it seems to me that, that I mean, you you hear a lot about, you know, Labour's going for their whatever it is, the 35% strategy, if I got, mm. have I got the percentage wrong. I think it might be 33 right. or 32%. Whatever. Now, yeah. the, the, the strategy yeah. is definitely but 35. But it might end up with 33. But it seems to me that that's exactly what the Tories are doing. They're, they're, they're actively, obviously not going for everybody's no. vote. You know, they're, um, they're, they're going... That's why they're courting pensioners. So yeah. yeah, they, they never have though the Conservative Party has never gone for everybody's vote. Sure. Mm. The Conservative Margaret Thatcher defined it memorably as our people. Mm-hmm. They look after our people. I, I happen to think that our people are um, a substantial majority of the population, <laughs> but I, w- I wouldn't deny that there, there's a uh, an element that the, the Tories just think are irretrievable. And yeah, there is a case for the defence of the Conservatives, though. And if you look, for example, at the jobs miracle, as some mm-hmm. people describe it, um, this is not the Thatcher 
government as as Jenny suggested. Um, you can think of social justice in terms of welfare spending, yeah. or you could think of it as Ian Duncan Smith, Michael Gove make the case sure. that it's about jobs, it's about giving everybody an education, and this is a government that's put extra resources into the most disadvantaged schools, and it's about the family. You know, there is an alternative Absol Tory concept of social justice. It may not be yours, Hugo. Well, no, 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 but no, 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 I, I quite agree, but you know what? They're not making that case. Mm. That, I mean, that, and that's pretty much what I argued in, the, in, in that column you mentioned. They've, they've, they were making that case a year ago, they've sort of thrown it out the window to a kind of, isn't Ed Miliband useless strategy? And I'd almost like to hear the Tories saying, you know, all that stuff with the NHS that we get criticised for, this is why. Mm. The stuff we've been doing with the schools, this is why. You know, making that Tory social justice But the trouble case. with that idea, the, the, the one that you say has mm. been relegated, and the one I think Tim describes as uh, as the good right is, yeah. is that it's... Thegoodright.com for all listeners. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's expensive, costs too much money. Mm. Yeah. Uh, we mustn't discuss the goodright.com anymore. <laughs> um, Why do you discuss it every week? <laughs> well, I sometimes it's tempted very to. <laughs> um, Matthew, Jenny's making the case that perhaps the polls are moving a little bit in the Tory direction. What we do know is that probably the Tories need quite a substantial lead even to get a majority. But you are, in your little script for us at the beginning of this podcast, mm. you actually think they might actually get that majority, yeah. which might need quite a significant opinion poll leader. Now, I know you don't trust opinion polls, but what other than on from the doorsteps of Derbyshire North do you have to tell you that this majority will happen rather than the Tories will do quite well? Absolutely nothing. No, I, one, one has to take a point of view, and I, I feel quite a, a strong sense in the Britain that I know that the opposition are not taken seriously and that people may not like the government particularly, but they, they think it's all right and we'd better carry on. And I just have this blind belief that that will translate into a government with the majority it, it needs to carry on. So, so I think the difficulty with, with, with that theory is that um, if you look at the actual seats and sophologists start going through them, it's, it's incredibly hard to see which seats the Tory would, Tories would win in order for this to be true, yes. because they would have to do so yeah. much better than they did five years ago. Mm. Nobody has ever done that in electoral history, and perhaps we're about to see a revolution. But the other difficulty with it is that if the Tories are to win so many seats, a lot of the seats that they have to win are ones that the Lib Dems would have to lose altogether, because a lot of their closest possible seats are, are Tory Lib Dem marginals. Now, the Lib Dems are pouring resources into their own seats, and they are very confident that they're going to win many more seats than the national polling would suggest because they say their private polls show that actually they're doing very well in the seats in which they in which they're targeting so i think that's a huge obstacle to the tories mm. getting more seats i don't believe that i think the liberals will do quite badly and i think it's unfair because should we actually, take a bet on air yeah i'm very I think happy they're going to, to get 35 I think they'll probably be closer to 25. But the problem for, for Matthew's theory, I think, is that the seats that the Tories gain from the Liberal Democrats will be compensated by seats that they will lose to Labour in the North West and, and other parts of the country. It's, it's hard to see them quite getting a majority. But your gut still is telling you the same thing. Should we make him take us to dinner on this? Yeah, <laughs> it's very dangerous <laughs> to trust one's gut, but, but I do. Anyway, that's 30%, isn't it? If it's, if it's less, not 30%, if it's less than 30 seats then you win, and if it's more than 30 seats, you win. Okay. I just wanted to define the bet. We, 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 def we define the prize. You yeah. could eat your words with Tabasco sauce, like some names <laughs> on that. Yeah. Can I say, in defence of um, Matthew's gut feeling that I was talking last night to a senior Tory who is pretty much in Matthew's camp, and he says it's just because you can feel the response on the doorsteps, and he spends every weekend out campaigning mm -hmm. around the country, and he says... 
when you're unpopular, people are aggressive. They don't want to look you in the eye. They slam the door on you. They're defensive. None of that is happening. He says people are welcoming mm. us. They want to chat. Um, there's just the sense of warmth towards you on the doorstep, which w- certainly wasn't there in '97 mm. or any of the years through to 2010. And just before we move on to, to Hugo's topic and to give the sad impression that all of us spend far too much time talking to senior Tories, Tories MPs, and going on the doorstep, but one of the things I've found from my conversations with Conservative MPs is one of the big topics of the last week has been the debates, and they are saying it's not being brought up by people on the doorstep at all. This doesn't seem to be an issue that's hurting David Cameron. You think it should, don't you, Jenny? Well, I think if I'm being purist, I think that in this age in which we expect to be able to hold people to account and we expect to be able to see them for ourselves and make our own decisions, then I think the debates seem a very important part of the political landscape. I completely understand David Cameron's electoral reasons for not wanting to take the risk. I mean, he's he's not wanting, wanting to sit there being high-minded about this. He just wants to think, in 54 days, am I going to be Prime Minister or am mm. I going to be out of here? And since he's been told that he just risks losing a few votes if he does this, it's, n- it's not worth his while. If it's not hurting him, uh, it should be. And, um, and maybe it'll start hurting him if you have sort of primetime ITV, you know, Ed Miliband sitting there next to an empty chair. Although, as someone said today, maybe that would actually be fantastic for him. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra. And I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. An hour and a half. The nation watching Ed Miliband on his own. I'm sure sure it's true that these things are not being brought up on the doorsteps, but voters, like like anybody else, have peripheral vision as well as focused vision. And the focus certainly isn't on debates and won't be. But in the peripheral vision, people are seeing David Cameron behaving in a slightly slippery, sly sort of way. And they notice, people notice these things. But the the cost of that, the Tory calculation, Matthew, is that compared to giving Nigel Farage um, and uh, Ed Miliband the chance to sort of come back into... The yeah. public money. No, no. That's a small price to pay. I accept the calculation. It may be a cynical calculation, yeah. but that's the It calculate. is a cynical calculation. It is a correct cynical calculation. But the danger is people will see you as being a cynically calculating person, and yeah. that isn't helpful in the long term. No. Okay, well, just, well, just one addition to that. I was talking to um, a very nice receptionist in the hairdresser yesterday, and she said, what are you doing? That's where we get our evidence, yeah. <laughs> All sorts of we're encounters, of course it is. next. <laughs> no, but these are, these are people with legitimate views like any other. Anyway, she says, what are you dress doing? Dressmaker, dress me. <laughs> dressmaker, come on, everyone goes to the hairdresser. I'd love to have a dressmaker. Do introduce me to one. Um, and she said, what was I doing? And I said, I was going to um, a political reception. She said, why? And I said, oh, it's just in the run-up to the election. And she said, what election? 
Mm. So that just puts it in perspective, I think. And then, yeah. then when I asked, when I explained a bit, and I said, "Aren't you interested?" Oh, I don't. I'm, I don't really do politics, as if it was something like stamp collecting, yes. or you know, which was just a it weird is. hobby at the edges of life that it no is. normal person yeah. would be interested in. Well, can I say your hair looks very nice, John? It's very lovely. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I am one of these people that is not just knows this election on, but is very enthusiastic about it. I think it's one of the most fascinating elections for a, a very long time, partly because of its unpredictability, but also, of course, because of what's happening in Scotland. And Hugo, that's your topic for us. And you are worried about the sort of jockophobia, you call it, anti-Scottish sentiment that's creeping into debate, yep. and somehow that the idea of Labour or any party forming a coalition with the SNP is somehow illegitimate. And if yeah. we continue to sort of toxify Scotland in this way, we're just going to increase the chances that the UK will eventually break up. Sure. I mean, look, the, the, the big, the important caveat here is I don't think the SNP will go into coalition with anybody. I, I simply don't, don't see that happening. That aside, I'm, I'm, al I'm almost so cross about this. I don't really know where to start. Um, <laughs> if, uh, I mean, it's just, it's sort of dri it, it sort of drive, drives, drives me mad. I, I, of course, hold no great candle for, for the SNP, for the Scottish National Party. Um, you know, they came close to, to breaking Britain in the referendum. I hope, sincerely hope they don't. I'm a Scot, but I'm a unionist as well. Mm. However, if they end up to be being Scotland's most dominant party, why should they not be a legitimate partner for anybody's any for anybody's coalition? Um, this is what this is what a union is, and what sort of I find I'm very struck by the last couple of weeks. There seem to be an awful lot of people in England, mainly Tories in England, who seem to feel a union is only a union is only worth holding on to if it makes no difference to England that it exists. <laughs> yes, there may be a situation where the democratically elected party that, that that has been elected in the bulk of Scotland means that England's politics are affected in a way that England would prefer they weren't. That's precisely what's happened to Scotland uh, forever. Uh, uh, and, 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 what, and the argument a unionist should, unionist should be making it should be exactly the argument to Scotland that yes, you can you can elect the SNP to Westminster and still be part of the union because that's what a unionist thinks. To make the Tory case and uh, slightly more charitably, it isn't the isn't it not that they're against a Scottish set of MPs running England, for want of a better expression? That has happened in the past with Labour MPs mm -hmm. from coming from Scotland to deny yep. England perhaps the Conservative majority that it voted for. The objection is that you have the SNP coming into government just not to represent Scotland, but to try and wreck the union. Isn't it not the Scottish MPs that people are objecting to, or the Tory campaign is objecting to? It's the wrecking nature of what the SNP would bring to Westminster. Well, I think it's quite... I mean, I think the best way to prevent the SNP from wrecking the, the union is to, to embed them <laughs> embed them in its, in its governance. Mm. But again, I mean, you know, if, if you're blasé about, about a Tory prime minister with one Tory MP in Scotland, it's very strange to, to really to have some sort of powerful objection to the idea of the perhaps being you know, the old SNP MP at Westminster who's agreeing not to vote down the Labour Party. I, I think it's, it's much worse than you say, Hugo. I, I don't think there's any rooted objection to the idea that a coalition might include a kind of sub-national or regional mm -hmm. parties. They do all over Europe. Exactly. Um, the, the Catalan nationalists supported a government in Madrid for ages and extracted lots for Catalonia. I think it's, it's worse than Tim says. I, 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 I don't think the... What that what the English fear is that the SNP will try to break up the union. The English are not very interested in the union. It's it's simple dislike of Scotland, mm. and it's it's dislike of the particularly the way the SNP behaved during the referendum campaign. Some of us watched the election debates. We we saw the sort of instincts that people like 
Alex Salmond were appealing to, and we thought, oh my goodness, if if that's what Scotland's yeah. like, why don't they just go but, away? Isn't that, but, that's not but, dislike of Scotland, though, then, Matthew, is it? It's dislike of a certain behaviour by exactly. Scottish nationalists. Exactly, yeah. and you don't mm. need to be you don't need to be English to dislike that. I mean, you know, 55 percent mm. of Scots re- rejected that pretty pretty resoundingly mm. um, but I think I mean the point you made about about you know the, the Catalans and other similar groups that's exactly it that's what a union is mm. it's like all these all these centuries mm. we've had a union and never really had to think about it a union is a it's a marriage it's a cooperation by people who may well have divergent aims but you hold it together for the sake of a union Je- that's a union Jenny, Jenny Russell the charge from Hugo is that we're suffering from jockophobia I think it's more salmonophobia where do you stand? I agree with Matthew, really. There is more separatist phobia. Why would you welcome into the middle of your government a party which may have absolutely no interest in making sure that the union works? Because we know that that's not the SNP's aim. They're not going to come in as the Lib Dems did, thinking, how best do we rule in the interests of the country? Um, they're going to come in and think, how best do we rule so that Scotland decides to become independent and breaks up the union? So I think what people fear is that they will come in and act like a, a, a fifth column and be careless of what's in England's interests because they don't care but so about England's interests. Now, I can hear what you're saying, which is that the best strategy to adopt to them is to pull them in, make them mutually responsible, make them actually... We quite like being part of this Mm -hmm. union. The problem is that the SNP's whole purpose in existence is to separate. It's not not a peripheral aim. I'll come to that in a second, but it's vital to understand that for many in Scotland, what you describe, Mm. uh, coming in, being involved in governance, having no stake in it, not really caring what happens, blah, blah, Mm. blah. Is, that's exactly what the Tories have been doing for a generation in Scotland. Mm. You know, that's that's exactly that's exactly how it's yes. felt. You know, they they don't need our vote. Doesn't matter them whether they get whether they get our vote. They rule nonetheless, regardless. Also, the idea of of I mean, yes, of course, the SNP's core aim is independence, but it's not their only aim. You know, they do. I mean, they do have a sort of their their sort of I don't know their sort of smaller nationalist mission. You know, they didn't necessarily even want the referendum. They're, they're probably you know if you go back sort of two years before the referendum kicked off in earnest, a great many well, a great many SNP politicians, let alone SNP voters, would actually would have been happier with an end goal of perhaps home rule than independence. Do you think that's you know, changed though now? It's hard to tell. I mean I'm not quite clear I'm 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 very confused about who SNP voters are. The demographic of people who vote SNP has just completely turned on mm. its head in the last two years. There used to be quite a strong business contingent in the SNP. They were the party people voted for in Scotland when they mm. didn't want to vote Labour and didn't want to vote Tory. You know, and uh, John wh- Twinney was a very popular finance minister sure. in Scotland. Whereas, whereas now they're, um, they build themselves as to the left of Labour. And the, 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 the language you hear in Scotland a lot about Labour is red Tories. Mm. And there is this, there's this sort of pervasive belief in Scotland that you have the SNP on the left and the Tories and Labour on the right, which is sort of staggeringly odd. Nicola Sturgeon is fascinating in that sense, isn't she? Because she's a much more sort of moderate sounding reasonable figure than the divisive Marmite Alex Salmond. But but, but, but far to his left. But much more of a left winger. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. A softer sort of voice, but actually a harder politics. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, but you, but you, but you really do have this has the, have this sort of notion that um yeah that, that Labour like the Tories is in the pocket of business in the pocket of banks, which is str- you know is a strange slur on Labour, but a particularly strange coming from the SNP because that's exactly what they've been for the last ten years, you know. Um, so it's all really sort of turned on its head and doesn't make a great deal of sense. And Jenny Russell, um, back to sort of Labour woes. I'm afraid with this this podcast has been a bit about <laughs> Labour woes, but um, the Lord Ashcroft polls do seem to. Suggest that Jim Murphy's election as Labour leader in Scotland has not reversed the the drift and the Labour Party in Scotland is 
heading for a terrible defeat. Yes, somebody um, in, the, in the Labour Party who'd been up in Scotland recently said to me, it is carnage up there. And the problem is that Labour completely took Scotland for granted. Mm-hmm. It just thought that's our fiefdom, There's nobody likes the Tories, we don't have to think about it. And they really didn't put any effort into making the Scots feel that they mattered mm-hmm. or had yeah. autonomy. And they're now paying the price for it. And Jim Murphy hasn't got enough time to change people's minds. But I wonder whether the whole push towards... Um, Independence from the S&P isn't fatally undermined by the collapse in the oil price, if that's sustained. Because all all the maths that they put out at the time of the referendum wouldn't hold now. Scotland would not be a rich country. If it had ever been logical, it would be. But it however, never was. It, it was just yeah. an emotional. It, if I just say, it's not just um, it's not just that Labour sort of took Scotland f- for granted for you know the last however many decades. They also completely bottled the referendum. I mean, you you cannot overstate the extent to which Labour just sat on its hands in Scotland during the referendum. The Better Together campaign ended up being more or less Tory-led, which is bizarre. You know, there, there were there were debates. What where didn't they do? They didn't talk about it. They didn't get out and do anything. It was like Jim, Jim Murphy, poor Jim Murphy was the only person doing anything in the whole country. You've got to think, you know, this is a, this is a, a party that had, what, 70, 80% of the seats in Scotland? Where the hell were they all? That you, had, you, had, you had Jim Murphy running around, you had, you had uh, Alistair Darling, you had Gordon Brown for the last 10 days when he could be bothered, and the rest of the times people thought, well, I don't want to sit on this platform because there's a Tory there and I don't want to be tarnished with this and I'll just keep my head down and hope this goes away. And so the reason why the SNP was able to just basically sweep into all that Labour heartlands in the, in the West Coast, which is now madly where the SNP is strongest, is because the, the opposition just wasn't there. They weren't going door to door. They weren't. They weren't making what's traditionally been the sort of Labour unionist trade unionist case. Just wasn't there. They were just silent. They were gone. What, what, what do you th- do you think, um, Matthew, of what Ken Baker, the former Tory chairman, said at the weekend? He said, and I think this is one of the points that Hugo is objecting to, that if the SNP do do very well, better to have a grand alliance of Labour and Tories forming a government <laughs> together than let Alex Salmond and his SNP MPs anywhere near power. It's a very Tory sort of response, very intelligent argument. I don't think it would work. A substantial part of the Labour Party sees Tories not just as a rival political party, but as wicked mm-hmm. and evil people, and I don't think the Labour Party would wear it. And if you did have this grand coalition, what a gift that would be to the SNP, course, to the yes. Greens, yes. to UKIP yeah. and to everybody else. Uh, mm. Another stitch up, another stitch up. Yes, That's the what English that's unite saying. against yeah. us. Yeah. Yeah. I, love, I love the way you just used a very intelligent argument as a criticism. <laughs> that's very English. Yeah, yeah, Too clever yeah. by yeah. half. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, if, if the only, every, all the focus is on a Labour-SNP possible deal. I wrote a column in Monday's Time suggesting why shouldn't the Tories consider some sort of offer if it meant home rule for Scotland and England got devolution. It might actually be more likely to deliver the federalism that the country, I think, needs. Am I barking to even consider this? I think it's very unlikely that the SNP would want it, but... They couldn't. I, I, I don't think the SNP could possibly deal with the Tories. The Tories have nothing to lose in Scotland anyway. On the on the substantial issue, though, which is home rule, which is um, tax o- autonomy for Scotland, I think the Tories are quite keen that Scotland should get tax, a, a control of its own taxes. And interestingly, the SNP are a little bit quiet about that issue. <laughs> Would um, uh, You're much closer to this than I am, Hugo, but if the Tories said to the SNP, you hate us, you don't like us, but we will give you home rule in a way that Labour won't, if you vote for English devolution in return, is that something even 
such an offer the SNP could just not accept because any deal, any arrangement with the Tories would just kill them in Scotland. Well, can I just understand what you're arguing? Are you saying so that therefore the SNP would need to vote with the Tories mm. in return for Home Rule? Yeah. Well, on, on, the, on many well, issues. They, they would, for example, allow the Tories to pass legislation that affected right. England and Wales only yeah. mm. and would just... But in return for not wrecking a Tory-led England and Wales administration, they would get Home Rule. Firstly, it's, it'd, be, it'd be... I mean... It would be toxic for the SNP to be doing any sort of Tory deal. You know, yeah. it would it would uh, it would beat them up in all the all the all the places they've taken off Labour. You know, so that that would look bad. And if they were selling it in terms of Home Rule, I mean, and in terms of English devolution, it's maybe hard to sort of grasp from England. But Scotland doesn't give a toss about English devolution. Mm. Not that Scotland's against English devolution or against all this chat about an English Parliament. Scotland's people in Scotland aren't interested. It wouldn't so be much of a price to pay then if we're getting we, home rule in return. It's not just it wouldn't be, it, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't look like a people. It wouldn't have any. The only thing that would have any traction would be SM, SMP Tory deal. Hmm. The idea that it would be about sort of federalism or any any anything like that or an English Parliament. People, there's there's no interest in England, in England's problems in Scotland. Hmm. Jenny Russell, I final just, word before we finish. It was a question, so oh, it may on. be I'll, I'll, illegitimate. I'll, I'll how, 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 do we, how do we bridge these divides? I was hearing from some people who worked for BBC Scotland the other day that the whole referendum campaign had completely ruined their relationship in Scotland because during it they were called in by senior people and told, well, of course, if we win the referendum, you probably you wouldn't want to stay. And so they no longer feel welcome in Scotland and it's changed their entire attitude. And I feel that this... Um, there's kind of poisoning taking place, which you are identifying. What does one do about it? How do we keep people together in a union? Well, I think we need to reach a place where we can understand that Scotland has a vibrant minority separatist movement and that that doesn't necessarily entail that we're heading towards separation. And one of the ways we do that is by not being appalled at the idea of, the, of, of, of a Scottish separatist party in, involved in the government of Britain. Because, I mean, as, as Matthew said, you know, much of Europe is, is mature enough to deal with this sort of situation. I mean, for God's sake, we just elected UKIP to the EU Parliament, which they don't really want to be in. You know, I mean, it, it's, this, this is on every level, this would be so much less mad than that. So I think, we, yeah, we, we, you know, the, the way forward is just to calm down a bit. I think there is no way forward. All is lost. <laughs> what a happy note to end on. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew Paris, Hugo Rickend, Jenny Russell, thank you very much. Thank you to Dave McGuire, my producer. Thank you to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week with another podcast and a review of what is going on in British and foreign affairs. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.